This is Toastcaster, your communication, leadership, and learning lab with your host, Greg Gazin. Episode 118, Grace Under Pressure, a masterclass in public speaking with our guest, Lisa Wentz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster, your communication, leadership, and learning lab. This is Greg Gazin. On the line, we have another special guest. Lisa Wentz has spent the past decade dedicating her life to helping professional and amateur public speakers overcome blocks, develop their voices, and craft their delivery. Her background includes extensive study in psychology and 10 years of professional acting, training, and live performance. She has a master's degree in voice and speech studies from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in the UK. And in 2008, she found the San Francisco Voice Center and since coached public speaking clients from 37 countries. She also has a brand new book, Grace Under Pressure, subtitled A Masterclass in Public Speaking. Lisa Wentz, welcome to Toastcaster. Hi, thank you for having me. It's an interesting name. Grace Under Pressure, a masterclass in public speaking. What's the significance of that? I got the subtitle first, actually, when I was talking to a very sharp consultant, who's the person who introduced me to the publishing company, Lid. We talked it through, you know, what is the nature of the book? And it was a great experience having this conversation with him, because sometimes when you're working on something, you get so into it, and you don't really step back and look at the big picture. And I talked about how I felt that it was an evolution of starting from not having any training. <laughs> That's sort of how the book presents itself. And then going through a lot of training and then getting to a place where you are using the same techniques that professional speakers do, that politicians do, that great speakers do. And I kept saying the word evolution. It's an evolution of a speaker. And he suggested the masterclass part. He said it's really more of a masterclass is what it is. It's not a beginning book. It's much more thorough than that. Uh, so that's where the subtitle came from. Then the main title, Grace Under Pressure, that's from Ernest Hemingway, obviously, but the, or take off anyway, I think that most people, that's what they want. We're always going to feel a little pressure if we're standing in front of a group delivering something. And I think that's the nature of it, the nature of public speaking, being seen, being heard, and the higher the stakes or the larger the audience, a lot of times people will become even more it feels pressure-filled, and we want to feel graceful. We want to perform gracefully. So that's where the book title came from. Well, that's so true. A lot of people feel that the, the pressure is something, oh, we need to get rid of it, but it's there, and you want to make the most of it. What I found really interesting with the book was the way you broke it up. Most books seem to focus a lot on the delivery, the vocal variety, and the gestures, etc., but your book, I found, it's broken into three parts. It's the first section is what's holding us back. The second one is vocal training. And the third one is delivery. Again, a lot of other books focus on delivery, but you spend, you spend a third on each of these topics. Can you please explain sort of how you came about that and, and why that was important? Thank you for asking. I agree with you. When I started to think about writing a book, I thought, well, what can I offer that's not already out there? Because there are great books out there. I absolutely agree that most of the books are either about overcoming fear and anxiety, you know, losing your fear of public speaking, tips on that, or the delivery style, Talk Like Ted, and these other books that are really focused on analyzing speeches and then how to 
craft your speech. And of course, there's the other kinds, which are how to write the speech is great. And I don't have that really in my book, but there's some great books out there. But in any case, so no reason to write a book unless you're really filling a hole or a need. That's why I included the first two sections. The real catalyst was the first section. What I notice with my clients, many come into my office and they will say things like, you know, I prepare, I prepare, I prepare. I know my material. I'm an expert in my field or I've been running my company for a long time or whatever it is. But this something keeps nagging on me. And when I go up to stand at the podium or when I go up to that interview on television, I become really nervous and I become insecure. I think I'm a fraud. Things that hold us back from just being present and really being able to communicate what we're there to communicate. The other part of it is the breathing, the resonance, the articulation. The second part of the book, that middle section, uh, which stems from my theater training, you can prepare and prepare and prepare and see coaches that will help you direct and shape and craft your delivery. If you walk up to the podium, the microphone, and you're not breathing, forget it. <laughs> it's done. If you start to get nervous, if something throws you off, if you're just not physically prepared, all of the wonderful work and preparation is just not going to be as rich. And when we get nervous, that is the very first thing that will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We will stop breathing or our breath will become very shallow. And then two things, will re- you'll have two things happen after that. Number one, your adrenaline rush, if you're having one, is just going to increase because you don't have a physiological response to it that's helping you. And then the other is uh, your voice will become constricted or shaky or, you know, many things, again, that my clients will say to me. So that's why I felt it was important to put these first two sections in the book that I could offer some training, some ideas, some sense of, you know, they're not the only people that have common fears that I talk about or things that might hold you back. And that everyone can, no matter where you are, or what you're doing, you can rely on your physical training. That's technique. Yeah, that's very true. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover everything in the book today, but I do want to touch upon a couple of these areas. When you're talking about what holds us back, again, looking at a lot of the other books, they quite often talk about the the stage fright. You always hear about that little inner voice, mm-hmm. the I can't, I can't. But in your book, what I found is that you talk about the fright before, during, and after. How is it different? Yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge your mindset. What are you thinking? What kind of inner messaging are you giving yourself? And where does it stem from? That goes a little deeper. That's the kind of thing that, you know, is very personal. And I think the reason that I'm touching upon all those three things is because they exist. And they exist to different degrees for everyone. Some people might have a debilitating inner critic and others might have just sort of a nagging feeling of, you know, I refer to the book in the book, imposter syndrome, where they feel like, uh oh, I'm kind of a fraud. I'm not really ready to be giving this speech, or I'm not really the expert that should be giving this speech. And usually those are false beliefs. If you've been asked to speak on a subject, you are the expert. And as far as the um, differences, sure, if you're having some anxiety about having to deliver a speech, you may procrastinate getting it together, because even the thought of that is uh, disturbing enough for you that you can just find other things to do. And most of us are very busy people. So it's easy to put off to the last minute. So true. Um, That's one way that that shows up. 
um, nervousness in the moment usually shows up, again, like I was saying before about physiological responses to stress or nervousness, it'll show up that way. So you're standing at the podium. It may not be completely noticeable to everybody else, but usually a physical manifestation of being nervous is to speed up your speech, not breathe, be very speedy, sometimes fidgety, unable to make eye contact, a few other things. And then the afterwards, I find myself saying this relatively often, is that we really need to look at what is healthy critiquing and what is unhealthy criticizing and make sure that we understand the differences between those two things. If you walk away from a speech and maybe it didn't go as well as you thought, there's a couple areas that you think you would do different next time. And you think about it and you say, oh, you know, my introduction was really long. I don't need to make an introduction that long. Next time I'm going to cut it. That's healthy critiquing. That's a healthy mindset. If you walk away from the speech and you say things to yourself like, I'm an embarrassment. I can't believe I just did so bad. I'm terrible. I don't ever want to do this again <laughs> or do anything like beat yourself up. I mean, I'm laughing about it right now just because when you take it out of context, it's kind of ridiculous, but many of us suffer from <laughs> these kinds of crazy thoughts. And in the book, I speak to that uh, with a few examples. Of course, all of my clients' names are changed and their occupations are changed. I respect their anonymity 100%, even the people who gave me full permission to put them in the book. One of the women that I refer to, she is, you know, she's a curator for one of the largest museums in the world. And she said to me, all successful women have imposter syndrome and you just have to accept that. And I put that in the book because I don't accept that. I don't think that anyone should be calling themselves a fraud. There's always more to learn. But this idea that pervasive nagging feeling that you're not enough or what you have to say isn't important enough or somebody else could do it better. It's negative and it doesn't give you anything to do. You can't go from there and learn from that. It stops you. Really, I do think it's a, it's a very important part of becoming a good speaker. It's an important part of life in general. Do you know the difference between when you're giving yourself some healthy critiquing, which gives you something you can do and learn and grow from, and when you're stopping yourself from growing, which is criticizing yourself. So in your book, you have an example of a gentleman named Pierre, mm-hmm. who I guess was very successful director of operations at a Silicon Valley startup, but yet he considered himself a fraud. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and how it sort of resolved itself? Sure. Yeah. When he walked into my office, the very first session, you know, I asked him what he wanted to work on and what his goals were. And he said, well, first, before I tell you that, I need to tell you that I'm not very bright. Some people are successful because they're extremely smart and then they work hard and some people just work hard. And I work really hard, but I'm not very smart. And I thought that was really striking. So I said, okay. And then I asked him to tell me more. He said that he was very worried about a couple of his team members leaving and his CEO seeing him as incapable of running his department. What I focused on immediately was getting him to a place of logic. First and foremost, it was a completely illogical statement to say that he's not smart. Secondly, it really struck me that he believed it so strongly. How did we work through it? I talked him through the logic of the situation, and I dug a little bit deeper. I filled back the, the layers of the onion to find out where that inner critic came from or this false belief that he wasn't smart enough to really do his job and that eventually people would find out. It stemmed from his educational experience. He had been in a very high-stress, high-pressure college 
and in his first year had an abusive, a verbally abusive teacher who picked on him. And I guess because of the high stress environment and he wanted to keep working, he just compartmentalized that, never dealt with it and believed what she had said to him. And it stuck with him for years. So basically by the time he got to me, he just needed to figure out how could he be better at his job. That's what he thought he was coming to me for. And I decided what we needed to do was, of course, to remove this inner voice that he had adopted because of his unfortunate educational experience. The other thing that we did was once I could get him to a place where his mindset was a little healthier, he was thinking about things a little bit more logically, I had him deliver some short speeches, team meeting strategy speeches, things like that. And we worked on them a little bit. And when he could see and hear himself, looking great and sounding great, then of course that built up his self-esteem. So it was a little hard for him to say that he wouldn't be good at his job or he wouldn't be a good communicator when I could show him the physical evidence that in fact he was. This is under the section false beliefs. Yeah. But, and when you read this, the beginning of the example, he or you talk about how as a Frenchman, he wanted my advice on how to become more fluent in English and look what came out of this. That's amazing. Right. There were two things he walked in the room with. That was one of them. And he had no problem with English. He spoke English as well, if not better than I do. So he was looking for ways to criticize himself or looking for reasons that he wasn't going to be good enough or something like that. So yeah, we did a lot of digging. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, that's a fantastic example. That's, uh, that's quite a success story. One of the features of your book are 35 different step-by-step -step exercises, and I was specifically looking at the inner critic section. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that to really deal with your inner critic, you need to say things out loud. Even if it's to yourself, you need to say it out loud. And you have one exercise, I think it's exercise number eight, where it says you have a, a conversation with yourself. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Yeah, that was it. Thank you for asking about that. That exercise is something that I developed after years of training with EMDR type of therapy and from my acting and improv background. And basically what that conversation looks like, that's the longest exercise in the, in the book. We all have different parts of who we are, or we can look at it that way, right? So right now I'm Lisa Wentz, my professional self talking to you about my work. And that's the way I'm leading. And that's the kind of mindset I have at this moment. Now, later, when I'll be with my family, I'll have probably a more playful, goofier side of myself. Um, I have a very creative side of myself. When you kind of acknowledge that that's pretty true, we're not just, we're complicated. We're human beings, right? We have different parts of who we are. So when we look at the inner critic, we see that as a part as well. And that part overrides the decision-making for ourselves, our main personality, like I said, is the personality you're hearing right now. I don't mean to sound schizophrenic about this, but I think if you think about it, it's true, right? <laughs> and there are parts of you that you really show to the world, your professional self, or maybe your athletic side, or your creative side, or whatever. And there's parts that are really private, that maybe you don't show everybody. You know, I have a friend who paints quite a lot. I think only two or three people know that. For some reason, he does it in solitude, and he goes into a headspace that is a very private headspace. Let's just say we look at the different parts of who we are, and then we acknowledge that there's this nagging voice there that's always criticizing us. For those of us who identify with this, but some people don't identify with having an inner critic. 
so the exercise, the idea of it is to take those main parts of you, four of them, acknowledge the different needs that each healthy part has. So the inner critic is not the healthy part, but the other three will be healthy. Acknowledge what their needs are. So let's just say if I was my friend and I was referring to, he needs to set aside five hours a week to paint. That's what he needs. If he doesn't get that, he's not going to be very happy. He doesn't feel happy. So we acknowledge that need. His front sort of professional side might have different needs and different times and that he needs to allocate to do different things like go to work and pay bills and whatnot. So once you do this exercise where you acknowledge what the different parts you lead with are and how you make decisions from them, the conversation is basically a conversation of needs and you really do talk. I have my clients talk to those parts and as they talk, and this is, I think, probably the most important part of bridging the gap between the first part of the book and the end of the book. When I said before, you know, you could prepare all you want for a speech, but if you've got a debilitating inner critic or a nagging self-deprecating side to you, it's still going to affect you and you're not going to be as fully present and pitch your speech on the far like you'd like. So the idea of the conversation, the exercise of the conversation is for each part of your personality to talk when the three healthy sides really feel like they've gotten out what they need to get out, then they talk to the inner critic. The goal ultimately is to get the inner critic to leave the room and for the other sides to decide that one or more of them will tell it to leave if it ever shows up again. That's basically the end game of that exercise. It's remarkably effective. Now, staying with the area of what's holding us back, you talk in the book about the impact of trauma on speaking. I know that I've had sort of physical challenges with, with a car accident, et cetera. Is that what you're referring to? Or you, can you maybe explain a little bit more on that? There is a section about physical trauma, yes. The solution depends on what the nature of the trauma was. So I think one of the examples I gave was athletic injury and the person had some surgery to their stomach that uh, went through the stomach anyway, that caused some damage, of course. The impact then on his voice was a very tight, rough, tense uh, area around his larynx, his throat. So he was restricting and tightening his you know, larynx a lot, which would then, of course, create some damage, not necessarily permanent damage, but a little bit of damage or tightening on the vocal folds. And that inhibits then the resonant sound of your voice. So why does that happen? When we speak, when we're breathing and when we're speaking, our stomach muscles, our support muscles is what they're called in theater training, are going to help the, the diaphragm and the lungs get more air in and create longevity for your speaking. So the, when I say support muscles, I'm referring to the transverse and the rectus abdominis. And since his were, you know, have some residual injury there from the surgery, he was not able to contract and use his stomach muscles anymore. And he was also compensating, not wanting to use them because he was afraid and the pain of it. So what ends up happening was that he started tightening his throat because he didn't have the, the support from his dia- the area of the diaphragm to support his lungs to then support his voice. 
and over time became very strained. That's an example, very direct example of physical trauma and how it can affect the speaker. And so what I did with him was I started to work on rebuilding the stomach muscles and really start engaging the intercostals, which is your rib cage, which is also extremely important for breathing and speaking. And um, once he started to then be able to focus on his rib cage, his voice could become more, more resonant because he was getting more breath support. That's certainly something you wouldn't expect to find in a, in a speaking book. I find myself, and this is probably a good time to transition into the vocal training section of your, of your book, I find myself quite often holding my breath subconsciously. Is that a common thing? Or? Yeah, I think it is pretty common. I think we do that throughout life. When we have a lot of stimulus around us, we'll notice well, all of a sudden we're not breathing as well. Walking through a city that has a lot of stimulus or walking in an area that's maybe unsavory, let's just call it that, can start to make us feel tight or tense. And we don't notice because we're so forward focused. Our eyes and ears are sort of focused on the outside world. We don't notice how we're treating our bodies. So we might start tensing or certainly not breathing as fluidly as we'd like. The good thing is that you can constantly remind yourself, always be checking in. Am I breathing right now in this high stress situation? And relax the belly and start to just let more air come in. The other thing I find quite often is that when we think about the voice when it comes to speech, it's always about rate pitch, pause, volume. One of the things you have is you have some exercises in vocal training and you talk about increasing vocal resonance and melancholic quality. What is that and how do you do that? Sure. So increasing the resonance of your voice. The resonance, just to be specific, is the sound waves that are leaving your vocal folds. So that's the sound of your voice. It's not It's not the pitch. It's not high or low. It, it's the other, the other thing, the main voice source. In terms of increasing it, you want to always do some breath exercises first. Make sure that you have a good amount of breath, a good warm-up, and I have one in the book, obviously, to set you up for success. And then the resonance exercises are starting with having very full capacity of of lung capacity, so a lot of air in your lungs. Um, There's a lot of pausing, but then sounding. So sounding Vs, sounding ahs, humming, those kinds of things. So you're basically warming up your instrument. If you were a singer, that's what you would likely call it, or an actor would likely call it warming up their instrument. And you're looking to bring sound forward, relax the throat muscles, and like I said before, engage the belly and and the rib cage with your breathing. And when I say rib cage, I mean lower rib cage. It has to be the lower part, not the upper part. The upper part of your rib cage and your shoulder girdle, that area, if you're trying to pull in there, you're just creating tension. There is no movement there really needed for breathing. So the focus needs to be on the belly and the the sides and the back of the rib. What I find with your book is that it's not a one-time read. With 35 exercises, I've only had an opportunity to to go through a few. It seems like you can keep going back <laughs> over and over again to it. Like you asked at the beginning, it's a master class, right? <laughs> it's a never-ending master class, right? <laughs> I guess we're, we never stop learning, right? Yeah, hopefully not, or else things would get really boring. <laughs> That's true. Let's move a little bit into the delivery sure. side. Obviously, you've got a background in acting or a background in theater. How does, let's say, the theater-type performance, how does that differ from speaking, and how are they the same? Sure. How does it differ? Well, one, if you're an actor, you're going to develop a full character 
if you're a speaker, you're going to be speaking hopefully from you. So that's a very obvious main difference. Some of the similarities, when I talk about creating sections for your speech, and let's say you have a 15, 20-minute speech or even shorter, you'll have sections to it. You'll have an introduction or a welcoming. Then you'll have maybe you're presenting a problem. You'll present a solution. You'll have a conclusion, something like that. Similar to acting, when you are on stage, you have scenes. In each scene, you'll have an objective that your, act, that your character wants to achieve. And that's what you will be playing as an actor. And if you kind of put that sort of mindset into your speech, you have little objectives throughout your speech. You want to welcome them, that maybe your objective is to create rapport. You want to explain a problem, maybe your objective is to simple, to give information. A solution, maybe your objective is to get people on your side, to get them to buy in. And then the conclusion is maybe something else, get them to want to follow up or give them a sense of reassurance that the problem is going to be solved. I'm just using that four part as an example, but um, that would be a similarity in a way to how we look at script analysis and acting. You know, what is your main intent? What is your overall goal of your character? And what is your main intent and overall goal of your speech? And then how is that broken down into smaller parts to support that main overall goal? Because each section should be going towards whatever the main reason you're speaking is. Still on the topic of delivery, one of the things I loved in the in the book when you talked about how you need to be in the moment, and the one thing I was thinking, I was at a Toastmasters meeting a couple of weeks ago, and there was a young lady there who was giving her first speech, and you can tell that she seemed to be so concerned about her presentation. So what I'm wondering is, could you perhaps give us some guidance or some thoughts on how can you be in the moment if you're thinking about the presentation? Right. It's a great question. It's very difficult. The best answer I could give you is do all the preparation you need to do first and beforehand, and then make sure you're physically prepared, meaning in a calmer place, that you're accessing your breath, that you're taking in information in your, with your eyes, you're looking around the room, you're staying present, as opposed to going into your head too much. And give yourself the reassurance that you do know exactly what you want to say. It may come out in a different form this time compared to another time, but that you are the expert in the room. You know what you want to say and get across, and the work is done. You don't have to work so much when you're there at the podium or in front of the postmaster's class or whatever it is. So that staying in the moment thing, a lot of it is mindset. Give yourself the reassurance that you know what you're, what you're there for and why you're there and why it's important that you speak. As far as the kickoff moment, I talk about being present a lot because the nervousness that some people experience will make them, right before they start speaking, think things like, okay, I have to remember the first thing I have to say. What is the first thing I'm going to say? <laughs> and they think that that's a safety net. Well, if I can just get that, then I'll give this great speech, right? But what ends up happening a lot of times if you're not in the moment before going up to the podium, because you're trying to remember what's the first thing you're going to say, you're going to do that likely through the entire speech because you're setting yourself up to be one moment ahead of where you actually are. Oh. And then therefore less present with the audience. Well, that's interesting because I, I find sometimes you're looking for that one cue. It's that, okay, go. <laughs> so that's a mistake, obviously. Well, I think it's a mistake to train your brain to be one step ahead. 
in a situation like that. I think better to give yourself the reassurance that you know what you're going to say and you're not going to miss something. And if you you do miss something, then you refer to it later. And I think that it depends on where you are in terms of literally where you are physically and what kind of a speech it is, what's the setting of the, of the place and time. But you can find ways to set yourself up for success. You know, in TED Talks, you usually have a comfort monitor where you're at the foot of the stage, everything you say is going to be right there, like a teleprompter, so you can always look down to get it. Mm-hmm. Other venues that will ask you to give a keynote or something like that will have that for you. Or if you have your slides, if you're giving, if you have a deck, you can give yourself the assurance that, yeah, you know, I'll look up at slide nine and I'll know what that's about and I'll go ahead and speak it, and those kinds of things. But going back to what I said a minute ago about preparation, the more that you prepare with the audience in mind in a healthy way, meaning what do I want them to hear? What do I need them to hear? How do I want them to respond? Do I want their buy-in with this? Do I want them to invest in my company? Do I want them to support this initiative? Whatever it is, when you're focused on hopefully achievable goals, and I say hopefully because we want them to invest, okay, maybe you're not going to give me $2 million, (laughs) but you can try, right? you've got some achievable goals there for you and you're focused on that. Again, I think that brings the nervousness down because instead of thinking about how am I doing and do I sound great? Are they liking me or the other things that are completely not, they're not within your control. You have no control over those. Those other kinds of needs or wants we think we have, but we do have control over whether or not we clearly articulate our mission, clearly articulate our initiative or the problem we're solving, or whatever it is. That makes it a lot clearer. We've hardly scratched the surface of your book, Lisa. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending the time on the program. If people want to find your book or they want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach you? I think my website, lisawentz.com, all one word, Lisa Wentz. And the book is on there as well. It's also on Amazon and all the usual places you would find it. If somebody wants to reach out to me, and just even ask questions. I'm always available, and my website is probably best. That's fantastic. Lisa Wentz, Grace Under Pressure, a master class in public speaking. Lisa Wentz, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies, a new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. <laughs>